0: This is more than therapy, podcast. More than therapy. This is more than therapy, more than therapy, podcast. This is more than therapy, more than therapy, podcast. This is more than therapy, podcast. This bonus episode of More Than Therapy, Ms. Maya Crumby of North Carolina Central University, a psychology student in the doctorate program, is interviewing Felipe Blue, a licensed clinical addiction specialist in Durham, North Carolina, regarding his work in the community in addictions and mental health.
1: So first will be the demographic information. Um, mm-hmm. So what's the length of time that you've been in this field?
0: I've been in this field, I guess since two thousand nine, oh. well, if you don't if you don't count my like intern's and my practicums and all that stuff and the the work that led up to it beforehand. If you count the time that led up beforehand, I probably literally started working in the field around 2003 but i didn't start you know doing like clinical clinical work until 2009 my previous years might have been like in the school system as a behavioral specialist mm. and then i might, then i started working with autistic kids and then i started working at a, a business uh, agency that dealt with um people that had sexual acting out behaviors or who had been perpetrated on and then when I got my master's, I was working for a counseling agency in a rural, in a rural group community. Mm-hmm. And then I worked for vocational rehabilitation for my practicum internship. And that um, and that's pretty much what led me to North Carolina because I was like, well, if I'm gonna be stuck doing vocational counseling, that's just not gonna work. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like the concept of it. And my friend told me about a company here called Youth Villages, and I came here.
1: All right, and where did you go to school?
0: Uh, my master's is, is from Webster University. It's in Missouri, and um, it's a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, with a, um, I guess you consider it a minor because most of the credits are that I took were for that would be marriage and family. Mm-hmm. It was a 60, 60, C it was a 60 credit program. Is K Crep accredited? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term.
1: No. Can you explain it a little bit if you don't mind?
0: K Crep is basically if you went to a school that's K Crep accredited, don't ask me what the acronym is, you have to Google it. Um, that means that you have all the training, education requirements, practicums, and internships to get licensed.
1: Okay. Um, So you kind of did talk about your professional focus slash training. Um, So the next one would be the percentage of clients that are receiving um, marital or family work.
0: The percentage of clients that are doing marital family work is nil. By the time they get to, it's nil, is low. I would say only about maybe 20% because by the time they come to me, they've already burnt those bridges, you know.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Their substance abuse issues probably took paramount which caused them to burn a lot of bridges regarding their family relationships as well as their intermarital relationships. Um, I wanna say on my caseload, maybe only to, like I said, about 20, no more than 30% are um, married and might be working on some aspect of um, counseling to address those issues as they try to work towards recovery, if they're even actively working towards recovery. Mm. That's interesting. Because I'm a licensed clinical addiction specialist. I don't necessarily deal with the marriage and family stuff mm-hmm. unless it's part of their addiction cycle and you know they have an addiction diagnosis.
1: Got you. Um, so would you say that it focuses more on the substance abuse issues within um, their life and where they currently are?
0: Correct. That's what I would say I would say that, you know, by the time I get them, they might be, they might be working towards recovery, or they might just be starting the, the stages of recovering. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, they might have been married, but they probably didn't sought help until after they lost everything. You know, they they hit bottom. Bottom mm-hmm. might be getting a divorce, or bottom might be, you know, losing your family because they don't feel like being bothered with you anymore. You know, bottom might be. Your family being stripped from you by DSS because of your involvement with drugs and not doing what you needed to do to get straight. Mm. Mm. Um,
1: what is your theory of treatment with the substance abuse population?
0: With the substance abuse population, I work, I try to use as many evidence-based theories as possible that address them, but you know, each person's an individual, so it, it changes. Um, For the most part, I'm what they call a solution-focused therapist. Deal with the problem as it presents now and come up with action plans and strategies to deal with it effectively. Um, With that, I might use um, techniques from motivational interviewing, Mm -hmm. Um, depending on a lot of times, except that 80% of people that have substance abuse issues, mainly women, um, they can't really get an accurate number on men because men don't usually report, um, have sexual trauma in their past. Mm-hmm. And so um, with those, they might have a diagnosis like borderline personality disorder or just chronic substance abuse to deal with the pain of the past. as a lot of times they're perpetrated on by family members or somebody close to their family. And, we, you know, so, you know, you might use strategies from dialectical behavioral therapy, you know, to help mm-hmm. them think differently and reframe their um, frame of mind. Um, of course, everybody's go-to might be cognitive behavioral therapy. Not so much for me, especially regarding people that are experiencing trauma because vicarious trauma would discount their feelings as it pertains to um, what they're going through or what they think they're going through. Uh, I find that solution focused and um, brief therapy yields the best results.
1: So just a kind of like side thing, but in one of our um, texts, it said that while motivational interviewing is like one of the widely used like techniques that it's slightly problematic um and I found that interesting I can't remember like what else it said but it was basically just I think I don't know like getting the client to really like expose themselves in a way with the techniques of motivational interviewing I don't know that makes
0: makes sense because if you if you're if the person the facilitator is using a motivational interviewing technique to me that's just the motivator that's not a strategy in itself to get them Mm -hmm. to the next stage of recovery that's basically allowing them to see let's use an example pretend I have a ruler and let's say right now how are you feeling
1: Mm, pretty okay
0: no give me from a number from one to ten we're using a ruler
1: okay um I would go with a seven. A seven. Okay.
0: So why aren't you feeling like a why aren't you feeling like a five?
1: Mm. Well, I woke up a little bit earlier today, so I feel a little bit more productive. So I'm mm-hmm. feeling better, pretty good.
0: Now, let's just say that that pertains to recovery. you might mm-hmm. ask somebody something very similar regarding how motivated are you to change your addiction habits? And they says they said a, a seven, or they might've said a low number. So you're saying, well, what's keeping you from being a one or a two? And they'll talk about what well, I'm doing, this, this, and this, as it pertains to recovery. And with that, they'll have the mind states to click on. Boom, you know, you know, I'm doing better than I thought I was doing, or I could do better, you know? There's other techniques that just, you know, motivates them to move forward. Because if it's your own plan, you're more likely to do it versus somebody dictating to you what you should do. Right. You will be more, in addiction especially, you're more resistant to someone telling you what to do. But if it's your own manifestation, you're more likely to do it. And the techniques and motivational interviewing help with that. Now, if the person's only using motivational interviewing, I think the text would that may, the text may have been speaking to that. Um, it's all about the stages of change. and If you're familiar with them, I mean, it just depends on where you're at but mm-hmm. I was taught always use a motivational interviewing technique, or use it periodically. Like just, just don't use it at the beginning when you first start sessions, because there's always some ambivalence in a client somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. And maybe the potential to like re-traumatize them or kind of put them back into a former state of the um, state of changes, like make them regress. Mm-hmm. That's
0: valid. That's valid especially if that's their go-to regarding why they don't feel a certain way or why they're unmotivated. Yeah, I can see that.
1: Okay. Interesting. Thank you for answering that side question. Cause I was like very interested. Cause of course the text can just say it, but actually having a person, you know, actually speak to it is important.
0: That's interesting. The text said that, send me um, the name of that book, because I want to read it and see why it says that I can see it re-traumatizing, but I've actually never seen it in practice, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. I'll definitely send you the title. Thank you. No problem. Um. The next question is, what is your assessment process?
0: My assessment process is um, somebody might refer them to me and intake or whatever. And then, I don't know. I don't understand the question. <laughs> I sit down <laughs> with them and I do the assessment. Yeah, I ask them the questions. I pull out a couple of um. A lot of our assessments, assessment tools are built into our comprehensive clinical assessment. So like the audit, which is for alcohol, like the ADAT, which is for that, the ASAM, which is for deciding what level of care they need. It's already built in. So it's not like I have to pull out different tools in order to make the assessment as 90 percent of the ones I would use are already built into our comprehensive clinical assessment at um, B&D. Um. And it's meeting them where they're at, you know, pulling information from other resources which they might've been involved in, like if they were involved with other clinics or were hospitalized or something. Um, Authorization, if they had a school, if their diagnosis goes back to school, getting authorization to release and pulling school records, behavioral records. If they have any involvement with probation or parole or have been incarcerated, getting authorization to release to get those records, to get a full picture of who that person is. But at the same time, not using anything in the past as a gauge of who they are, allowing them to tell me who they are a lot of times sometimes the assessments are already done before they come to me. they was done in intake mm. and um I find that what's on paper does not reflect what I'm seeing in front of me. I found that the diagnosis they was given isn't as accurate as they made it out to be in the assessment as the person you know might have not been as forthcoming. or you? in something that was gauged by a clinician who wasn't on top of their A game or gave them a diagnosis initially to bill, but over time didn't ever change the diagnosis when they saw it was something else.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I can get and see why that's important because on one hand, you know, experiencing or seeing something on paper doesn't always speak to actually experiencing and seeing it actually firsthand in person. Mm -hmm. and of course there can be an example of like maybe a person um, as far as on paper acted a certain way for them for the assessment but then act in a complete different way um when you see them and like stuff like that right exactly so you kind of did for the next question you kind of already answered it as far as the techniques that you use Um, the question was like, what are common techniques that you use, but you said solution based, um, brief, and then you use a little bit of motivational interviewing and DBT, just depending on the individual. Um, so are there any other techniques like outside of, I guess, theories, um, that you would use?
0: Theories um mm, no that's pretty much it um every now and then i might use if it's family related um bowman's theory is helpful regarding family issues but like i said only 20 percent might have you know a need for that um yeah like i said just those those main things right there you know those are the evidence-based ones that show us what we need to do um I don't want to deter you from studying for these things, but I find that a lot of those old theories just does not apply to the population I serve. Mm. There's no reason why I should, there's no reason why my test for licensure should have concerned anything with Freud. Has nothing to do with the population. A hundred or something years later, Erickson, the stages of change. Oh, if they're acting like that, they're stuck in this stage of change and they need to resolve that conflict. Maybe in theory, but actually, let's deal with what's going on right there. If they don't have food in their stomach and house over their head, that's the things we need to figure out. They're developing strategies to alleviate that stressor so they can work on their mental health issues.
1: Exactly. That's one of the reasons why I'm in the program that I am as far as clinical psychology, because a lot of these older theories, like what you spoke to of like Freud and Erikson, Erikson is just like very um, European centered and mm-hmm doesn't take um, into consideration people of color, but namely, you know, the black community and the black population. Mm -hmm. Uh, So definitely, I just, a lot of things, like even standardized tests and different assessments don't really speak to other subsets of the population such, but. um. Right,
0: like those assessments I had when I was in school, when I was in Mississippi, it's like, luckily, you know, my mom had the forethought when we came to this country, to buy encyclopedias and books like that. So I knew these words, but mm-hmm. people in my neighborhood didn't necessarily know words like cupboard and things like that. And so it, it, it didn't take cultural it took, it was too culturally inferred, which made black people who didn't ever hear those words, you know what I'm saying? You know, we'll say, get you know, get stuff from here and get stuff from there or finna and this and that. And therefore they didn't do as well on those tests, you know, because that wasn't their culture. That wasn't the wording they used. And by design, because the books in their school didn't give them those tools or those wordings as well. as They had old, outdated books a lot of the times. I still have one of the books in, from my Spanish class when I used to go to high school there that was just so old and decrepit. And no, and you could see where it was from another school that was in a white district.
1: Mm. Yeah it's so crazy I remember that too as well at my middle school like books one are just in terrible condition and torn Mm -hmm. um and then the whole like books used to have um the little I won't say a sign-in sheet but I guess when people could put their names or whatever in it but then it'll just Mm -hmm. be like a school or name from like years and years and years ago like this shouldn't be relevant at all to the time that we're in
0: at this point exactly exactly Uh, a lot of systemic racism involved in this world
1: absolutely and it's definitely more ingrained in things that I feel like a lot of people know or are led
0: to believe Mm -hmm. you're going to be a great psychologist
1: thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate it um the next question is what are ethical issues slash dilemmas that you confront in your practice
0: ethical issues is i'm a community-based therapist so a lot of things we do you know you know you want to be able to help people and give them resources you know they don't have medicine you maybe feel you know let me find a resource and then let's say you don't find a resource but you got three dollars so you say hey i found a resource here you go three dollars get your medicine um you know just things like that that cross our ethical you know, that looks like, that could look like dual relationships, but dual relationships specifically say things that would harm the client. And I think a lot of things that are deemed as, you know, unethical, if you really look at the definition, aren't because they're not harming a client. If anything, they're benefiting and helping the client, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, I think that is a lot of, in some ways and some definitions, depending on which ethical board, I find that some of the ethical um, considerations are, Outdated or gray, like you know, social media clauses, and they find that you know certain social medias are considered dual relationship. Well, if it's a public page like an Instagram, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can if you privatize it, yeah, you have to accept them. But why should I have to change my whole way of navigating this social media world to market and put myself out there because I have clients out there? You know, what I'm saying this. The board is just in some aspects ridiculous. Actual ethical dilemmas was like having to report staff or report colleagues who relapsed, and you know, saying, but of course, you know, they say the rule is to address it with the client, the, the colleague first, and let them see if they can resolve it on their own. But things like that, I think, especially if you have a substance abuse past mm-hmm. and you're going through something and you're not appropriately addressing your own issues, you can fall into those gray areas and have an ethical violation. One of my best friends. Dear friends, fell into that trap. She was the suboxone manager, and her husband shot and killed himself in front, in their bedroom with a shotgun, mm-hmm. bloody and red, blood bathed the whole room. And she, it just her mom's suicide. So, um, you know, she had you know history regarding that. So it triggered her, and she started, you know, I guess, using substances again. But mm. as a suboxone manager, she was bringing people in and she would make deals with them, the people she knew in the community. You get on suboxone and you give me 50% of your suboxone. You know what I'm saying? So,
1: mm. Wow. Ooh, that's heavy.
0: Yeah. Um, she's a lot better now though, but still, oh. she's, she's on suboxone herself now because you know the addiction really took her out. She, she, yeah, she went through the ringer. And had and had dual relationships all throughout, you know, former clients partying at their houses, getting arrested with them. This is in Person County, which is Roxboro, a town over from Durham. And mm-hmm. um, but if you look, but she never um the, the super our supervisor never um violated her and she never got a um being on her license. It was just allowed to expire. Oh wow. Right. But you know, that's that white shit.
1: I was <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs>
0: Our supervisor was a white woman from Monk's Corner, South Carolina, one of the most prejudiced places near a a city in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, somebody who had to do dual jobs because the jobs were shrinking and you wanted the CSC to stay open, they dinged them on social media policy. They dinged him on, this is what I'm talking about myself, they dinged him on um, helping somebody how you say? Mm pay their um, money that they had, the court fee they had in order to avoid incarceration because they had a stomach condition that they were jailed, they would die. And not, not even using their own money, using the money that the mother handed to him because boom, ding, do a relationship. You shouldn't be that invested in the client to coordinate like that. You should never had no money. Boom, ding, right there. Um, social media app, not really a social media app called Study Blue, where people use aliases and talk about, You know, they basically mark the level of how they're feeling and why they feel that way. Boom, boom, boom. Interacted with a client on there. We both had aliases. Boom. Her wife said that um, it was a, her having therapy with me and using that Study Blue app, not Study Blue, um, Moody Blue or Mood Blue or something, anyways, it was the cause of her um, her um, getting divorced. Okay. So, boom, they consider that a dual relationship. So, I mean, just different stupid things that don't, if you really look at it on paper, especially your community base, like eh, that's not a dual relationship or boom that did not harm the client, you know what I'm saying? When the mm-hmm. client at her mobile crisis assessment indicated that one of the main reasons why she almost suicided was because she didn't want to be in a gay relationship anymore.
1: Mm.
0: Wow. But, the like, for instance, the LCAS Ethical Board, it has a mean age of 60 years old. What the hell do they know about current services? They didn't know nothing about community support team. They didn't know nothing about substance abuse intensive outpatient program. They didn't know anything about these enhanced programs. All they knew from their time was groups and individual, which was all in a safe, sterile, you know, office building. You know, Mm -hmm. community-based therapy is a lot different.
1: Mm -hmm. You actually
0: go to people's houses, you see what they're going through, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. I was about to be. It's, it seems more personal and intimate.
0: Right, well, I could be. You know, that's why I recommend everybody continue to get supervision even after licensure, and and, and stay in therapy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, for sure. Therapists and specialists need people to bounce things off yeah, as
0: well. Definitely. <laughs> Now, that's why people have such burnout because they feel like, oh, I'm a therapist. I don't need therapy. Uh, psych, you're dealing with thirty okay, so the 30 people and eight issues, plus your own shit. You need therapy, trust.
1: Right. Exactly. Can't handle it on your own at all. Right. Um Hardly you
0: could, you shouldn't be expected to.
1: Mm, very true. Very true. So I know that you said. You don't do a lot of family work, um, but the next question is, how do you, I'll just ask you, how do you maintain records or uh, your notes on all or just your primary clients?
0: Just a primary client, and we don't put the name of the um, collaterals in the note because if they might become a client and then then there'll be like a HIPAA thing.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: So we'll say their husband or their significant other or their brother, their sister. You know, we don't say their name. Their identified fiance at this time, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Those chronic fiances, you know what I'm saying?
1: Got you. Um, do you treat individuals, couples or families differently around substance abuse issues? And if so, how are they different?
0: Mm-hmm. It all depends on you know the the issue that's impacting them. I mean, if substance abuse is the primary thing, if substance abuse is the attribute that's falling out of the relationship because of the relationship, instead of the relationship being impacted by substance abuse. So I would say, depending on you know which window we're looking out of, yeah, I would use you know family focus, you know relationship, conflict resolution, communication. Skills and things like that. And if it's just the opposite that the substance abuses impact is causing the family to mess up, then of course then I would focus more on the substance abuse issues. Get an assessment of what's what, and what's the driving factor, what's the common denominator, what's the most attributing factor? It's never usually it's not usually just laid out in one way. Gotcha. Um, especially in this day and time you know a lot of people have substance abuse issues because they might have had a car accident or they might have had uh, something that hurt them in pain so they were put mm-hmm. on I don't know something by their doctor and then after a while mm-hmm. the doctor was like eh, nah you're good now you should be good now but you're not good because the drugs you were taking caused you to become addicted to that drug and you can't just take it from them so then they move to street level drugs heroin morphine they go they through withdrawal
1: and then start right. chasing the high and
0: stuff right. like that. right right so then that might impact the family. So with that, then you you know, it's a it's a weird balance because you know, you know that it's the substance abuse issues impacting the family. So you try to figure out a game plan to help them alleviate their substance abuse issues or deal with it more effectively, so it won't impact the family. But then sometimes people might go to drugs to escape the family, you know what I'm saying? Their husband is abusive, their husband is toxic to them and treats them emotionally unwell, or he cheats on them all the time. And you know, she's just dealing with it her own way, so she gets to drinking. So, you know, then you you try to resolve the conflict in the relationship or dissolve the relationship and you'll see a reduction in the alcoholism.
1: Hmm. Would you say um, in some of your experience with your clients, like would they bring up genetic influences or like talk about their family history and such? Like, oh, Oh, my father was an alcoholic and et cetera, et cetera.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. That's definitely a driving point, especially in um, the female client's um, men not usually not as forthcoming in most cases um yeah you know they, you'll find it there's a strong link especially um alcoholism especially um even you know the crack cocaine you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying or heroin i know a, a woman her mom died from hiv and it was a heroin addict and now mm-hmm. at 40 something she's she found herself and she's a, a clinician a mental health professional dipping into that arena and you know you would think that she would always swore up and down that she would never do it but apparently she found solace with it and it's easy to find solace with it if you're familiar with it based on your family lines
1: Mm. wow that's so interesting like even i guess because for some people um and well, I won't say in this day and age, because I feel like it's been like since, you know, the quote unquote war on drugs type thing and like stereotypes, mm-hmm. but um, just thinking that people that have addictions are like low lives and like they're houseless and people don't really see that now currently, especially with like the opioid crisis, like a lot of the substance abuse is like, you see it more so in, like, the suburbs and, like, places Mm -hmm. where, like, higher um, um, economic status, like, it's not just, you know, people that are houseless or people that are, I guess, mentally ill and things like that. So that's really interesting that she was a clinician and... mm.
0: Yeah. Um... I mean, I see it across the board, even clients, you know, that might have been clean for a period of time. And then they'll follow themselves, fall into lining up with the thing that they hated the most about their parent. Then they become that very same thing. And then they become the parent that they didn't want to become. You know, it's, I, I find that trend more common than, you know, a, a, a typical way of becoming an addict, or if there is even such a thing. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the cycle just
0: keeps on going yeah -hmm. scream all day long i love my children i love my children yes but on paper your your actions don't show us that
1: Mm. exactly wow um so the last question is how do you view the culture of the client having an impact on substance abuse issues
0: Um, culture, I would say, you know, they, you know, they were exposed to it as a youth coming up in it, you know, like marijuana, alcohol, things like that, or their grandmother mama did cocaine crack or whatever. I think that could impact them. You know, it all depends on the the value system that was ascertained in their youth. But then again, that's not even always the case, because I mean, I grew up in a house where my mom had issues with um, drugs and stuff like that. My brother, he went full head into it. I, for the most part, was able to walk away from that path. Mm. Um, you'll find that in like, same cases. You'll find that cases where they were physically abused. Oh, I would never hit my children. Versus the other brother, not even a year behind them, might be more physically abusive towards his wife and children because of what he was exposed to as a youth. Yeah, I guess, it, for lack of better terms, I guess it depends on how we're built. But I would say culture is a big influence. You know, you watch some Hollywood films. I don't know about white people, but it's just I did. <laughs> and it was, they, they, you know, their mom has a whole medicine cabinet full of pills that she gets from her doctor and then her teenage daughter goes in and has a party with the pills and stuff like that. This is because of the things they've been exposed to, things that they've seen. And that all encompasses culture, but also the movies we see, the music we listen to. I mean, our whole trap music influence out of Atlanta, um, definitely heavily perpetuates drug use, but they say Future doesn't even use drugs, he just talks about it, but how many people fall in line underneath the influence of his music that are doing perp and drugs that slow them down, you know what I'm saying?
1: Exactly, yeah, I remember when um, something came out about that, and then um, Juice World. The young mm-hmm. artist that passed away like he had spoken in an interview or something like how futures music had and like basically led him to drink like lean and like all this mm-hmm. stuff, and then ultimately lean and i guess i think it was i think perks or something ended mm-hmm. up leading to his death which it was just right. like that's that's insane and then you, right. of course you have all these rappers um nowadays and also very young Mm-hmm. passing away from these drugs and right. the same people that have inspired them are one keep making the same music but two you honor them and give them a rest in peace post but then you still post you doing it and it's just where's the, right. like, like, the cognitive dissonance right. like what's
0: right what's right. going on <laughs> I mean as 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 good as those songs sound purpose set Molly Perkins, I mean, you if you use that same flow and put something else there, it would still sound good you don't have to put a negative dissonance on it because, let's see, Molly Perkins said, I have a nice pet, my doggy dog. I have a nice, I mean, you can do so many things. The beat is the driver. You can So you, what you put on it is the melodic, is the influence over it. It's the beat that's so melodic that influence you and then those words seep into you. So you can put positive words and get a better outcome. I mean I do a little bit of music therapy too
1: <laughs> oh cool like how did you do well how did you move into that like in how did you like did you see like a difference as far as in like your clients and such
0: okay how did you move into ah my first degree's from Full Sail Gainesville Florida it's a music production I used to be a rapper and when I got older I was like, ah, my adolescent clients, I'm not, we're not reaching them. Let's make it fun. And we just started producing beats and making beats and having them tell their stories and getting stuff out. And that was a way to process, you know, play this song. Tell me what you felt when you did this, da, da, da. Working whole journals and, you know, just tricking their ass. Doing whole journals and writing entries that influenced their mini EP or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Writing is such a beautiful tool regarding resolving issues of your past and present.
1: I agree. Um, Just in a general sense, I'm, well, for me, even though I'm in clinical psychology program, my end goal is to kind of um, mesh together like wellness with treatment. And Mm -hmm. so while I understand that there are a lot of people that benefit from being on medication, of course, I also want to kind of look into other avenues and so I consider myself to be somewhat spiritual but kind of just kind of taking like meditation and like Mm -hmm. yoga and like energy work and like meshing putting that together with therapy and such and seeing the effect that it has mainly of course on the Black community because I don't really want to (laughs) deal with the white population (laughs) but um just kind of seeing that impact on it in a way that will, I guess, make the Black community, being that we struggle in terms of mental health issues and mm-hmm. uh, un- like, you know, being that it's a white thing, quote unquote, I don't know, I feel like kind of looking at it and going about it in a different way can help. And so that's really interesting that you in- use musical therapy, because I think that's one of the main things that could really help, plus music for you know black people is very ancestral
0: anyway so
1: that's cool that's really cool
0: that's dope i mean you gotta use whatever you got to help them get what they need to get
1: exactly because it's not like a one fit
0: all type situation right and the white norms that we've been taught in and educated in don't actually get the job done but to the point now, like i said that's why i like to intermix it you know you, we call it eclectic you know fuse it fusion eclectic fusion because you know people have their strengths and you know, you're drawing their strengths so if they like music boom incorporate music if you can they like drawing boom incorporate drawing or painting if you can mm. like you know i have a friend out west she um she's a or whatever whatever that word is to do with horses and i hate horses but for her and where she lives at because they have a lot of horses and people like to ride horses she gets a lot of work done by riding with horses with her clients oh that's cool i guess i'm scared of horses
1: well no they're kind of scared i don't know some animals just look i don't i don't know they just look as if not necessarily they don't need to exist, but it just doesn't <laughs> right with me sometimes. And horses kind of they look in a certain type of way, like mm, I don't know,
0: right? I don't right. Know.
1: But that's uh that's really cool. Yeah. I really keep that in my mind as far as, um, well, of course, well, I still have to do practicum and internship, but um, kind of stick putting that in the back of my mind and in my pocket as far as using that to kind of connect more with people because I feel like, you know, again, you can't one thing doesn't fit with everybody, but also I feel right. like it's easy for clients to feel neglected in a sense if it comes across that you're not not necessarily well, one, listening, but two, like not trying to make an effort and connecting with some part of them besides, I guess, what they're coming to see you
0: for. Right. Right, right, right. right. When you take your practicum and your internship, please, please try your best to do it at the VA. Mm. Yeah. That's that's a
1: very that's a population that I is very neglected still.
0: I think so. I mean, I think there's been a lot of effort to correct the wrongs, but for the most part, yeah, they still need a lot of help. But not only that. I mean, it's almost guaranteed federal job. Everybody I know who did an internship there got hired. Oh,
1: that's dope. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how it'll go because with Central, like, they lost a lot of practicum sites. And then, of course, because of COVID and the pandemic, like, some of it has moved to telehealth. Um, So, hopefully, we'll see. I think I'm supposed to, well, hopefully, I can start in the summer, but definitely the fall. So, we'll see. But I know, like, I think before, I don't know if the VA is one of their sites, but I know in the past they've had, like, the jail as something that, like, I personally would be interested in, but people are just like, "Oh no!" I, I'm just like, that's one of that's one of the things that is that's one of
0: the most neglected um, populations. Yeah, because recidivism is so high because they don't get the help they need coming out or before coming out or reentry.
1: Exactly, and then if you're not assessing or dealing with that actual thing that kind of led them to be in the position that they are as far as being arrested or in jail which is usually like um economic status um whether they have their needs are being met as far as shelter and food um are they impoverished like i'm gonna have
0: to zoom out 90 percent of it's peer influence peer influence and overall woman so now nah, i disagree with you Back in the day, yeah, maybe, but so much. I know so many cats that's in jail right now behind dumb shit. You know what I'm saying? Not so much their environment. They had the same opportunity as their sister. Why didn't she become a drug dealer? And she's in the master's program at Central. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, peer influence. You know what I'm saying? Not having strong parental or adult influences that help them. A lot of times they say these moms are raising their children, daughter, son in the same house. They give the daughter all the tools she needs in order to navigate this world as an adult. The son, they coddle. They don't really give them the skills. They get out here. What is he going to do? He's floundering around. You can't stay with me past 18. Get out. So they start staying with other people, baby mama, doing negative influences and behaviors in order to have money because they don't really have the skill set to do it because what? One, their daddy wasn't around like that. And two, their mama didn't really give it to them. They gave the skills to the daughter who's doing well. You know what I'm
1: saying? Yeah, definitely. I've heard experiences of that as far as, you know, the daughters being kind of given more keys of life and to success. And then, you know, the boys kind of being by the wayside as far as, you know, you're kind of on your own, like figure yourself out for yourself. You got to be a man and like all the, you know, borderline or toxic masculinity type stuff. yeah this I'm really appreciative one of you agreeing to the interview and also just the whole experience because I've learned one just so much um I've never taken a course in the I believe it's the counseling like it's a whole like different program um Mm -hmm. but one I'm enjoying the class, but two actually getting to speak to someone that actually deals with it in their day-to-day life and as a career has really opened my eyes. And again, I really appreciate it.
0: You're more than welcome. So I'm glad Nicole was able to connect you with someone.
1: Yes, she definitely came in clutch and helped me out. And I feel like my paper, because we have to do like a four to five page paper. I feel like I will be able to do that. And I feel like I'll have the best interview. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe cocky, but I'm feeling that I do. <laughs> um
0: You must be a good writer, Dan.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at writing. I'm pretty good. I'll be humble, I guess.
0: There you go. Be humble. I'll, I'll, I'm pretty good at writing. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, but is there anything else that you would like to add or say? Because I feel like I kind of led into some follow-up questions based on some of your answers. So I kind of don't really know what to ask.
0: I just find that, you know, whatever you do, I mean, it's not really a segue, but whatever you do, just know that what you got in school is just the icing on the cake. Everything that you do thereafter is going to help you navigate this world of mental health the CEUs, the conferences you go to, the network and connections that you make and the things you do for yourself regarding building your own programs, doing your own research, you know? And I wish you well, you know what I'm saying? Stay connected. And I would like to see how you are um, progress in this world of mental health.
1: Thank you so much and we will do. And um, I'm gonna definitely send you the title of our one of the textbooks for our class. So like, and I'll try and find the page to where it said it.
0: Okay. I appreciate that. Yeah. I want to go look into that. That's that goes against everything I learned and know, but that might just, you know, it's a newer book, so it might be just more relevant.
1: Yeah. I can't remember when I I think in the last couple of years it came out, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember, but yeah, I'll definitely send it to you.
0: Appreciate you. Take care of yourself.
1: You too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. i mm-hmm.